This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, November 7th. On the pod today, a few dozen Canadians finally escaped Gaza through Egypt. They're the first group to make it out. Coming up, we'll hear from one family member in Canada breathing a sigh of relief and another still anxiously waiting. And the cries grow louder for a ceasefire, but Israel continues to rule it out. We'll speak to Israeli and Palestinian representatives to Canada. Plus, here at home, provinces are pushing back against the federal government's housing deals with cities across Canada. Could this fight delay the housing process? Our power panel is here to weigh in. We begin at the Egyptian-Gaza border, where the first Canadians have made it through the Rafah crossing to safety. At least 59 people connected to Canada were granted permission to leave. CBC News spoke to some of them. I have a daughter that has uh, type 1 diabetes, which makes it extremely difficult for me to keep uh, under such a situation. Uh, I was able to get uh, my two daughters and my wife uh, names on the Canadian list uh, after a lot of trials. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to get my parents' names and my sister's names on the list as well. So I left them in Gaza in such a horrible situation. I lost my family and I lost my family, my best friends and their family. And we lost a lot of things. We don't have any power. We don't have electricity and we don't have water. They're killing everyone. Even the bombing the houses on the all the families living inside. Uh, the number of the killing is amazing. It's very amazing, and most of the people get die or kill or injuries. They are babies, and even uh, kids under age, like monthly old or days old, and uh, very very hard, difficult even time. To fresh my memory, what I see, it's like really difficult time. Okay, in just a few moments, we're going to hear from a couple of Canadians affected by today's initial evacuation. First, though, Israel says its troops are now in the heart of Gaza City for the first time in decades, fighting Hamas on the streets and in tunnels. It comes exactly one month after Hamas launched a deadly raid on Israeli towns. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins us now from Ashkelon, Israel, just 13 kilometers from the Gaza Strip. Uh, So, Ellen, we're learning more about Israel's plan in this war. What is Prime Minister Netanyahu saying? Well, we had our clearest comments yet from Benjamin Netanyahu on what he sees happening in Gaza the day after uh, the fighting, David. In an interview with ABC News, Netanyahu says that Israel, in his view, will have some sort of indefinite security responsibility for Gaza after the war is over. Now, what exactly that means or looks like is, of course, incredibly unclear at this point as the fighting uh, rages on. We've heard from the U.S. on Gaza after the war as well. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, saying in Tel Aviv on Friday that there shouldn't be an occupation by Israel of Gaza after the war. But again, so many questions. And at this point, the focus is still very much on the fighting uh, itself. I'm in Ashkelon, you said, about 13 kilometers away from Gaza. We can hear uh, the thuds of artillery fire going in from where uh, I'm standing now. Uh, The focus right now is very much on Gaza City for the 
the Israeli military. We heard from the defense minister of Israel tonight saying that uh, the troops uh, are operating in the heart of Gaza City uh, itself. The IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, said that it found uh, positions tonight of tunnels. We know that Hamas has that web of underground tunnels below uh, the Gaza Strip, saying it found entrances to those tunnels near an amusement park. Again, repeating that allegation that Hamas uses civilian infrastructure to shield uh, its fighters and positions. Israel again uh, called on civilians to move from the north to the south today uh, as the fighting intensifies. It released video that the IDF shows says shows some people uh, making that move, waving a white flag, moving on foot. Aid agencies have said, of course, that doing that is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for so many people. Um, Israel is telling people to move to the south because it says it'll be safer there in the south. But David, there have been uh, ongoing strikes there as well. Now, just going back to that interview for a moment, uh, Netanyahu was also asked about the ceasefire question as calls for a ceasefire grows. Uh, he says there will be no general ceasefire, again repeating that message, until the hostages being held by Hamas are released. He talked about tactical pauses potentially happening, you know, an hour here, an hour there. He said possibly, depending on the circumstances. We know we talked to Joe Biden about that as well. But what an hour here or an hour there would mean to civilians on the ground would be very little, David. Right. And, and you know, humanitarian groups continue to call for that ceasefire, Ellen, because of the conditions inside Gaza. What's the latest you're hearing on the humanitarian situation in there? Well, those calls grow every single day. We're hearing from UNRWA, which is the largest aid agency on the ground in Gaza. It's a UN aid uh, agency. And it posted today on the one-month mark since the October 7th Hamas uh, attacks in Israel, one month of war, talking about the struggles that people in Gaza uh, are facing, struggles to find food, uh, saying that there's forcible displacement happening in Gaza and calling it a tragedy of colossal proportions. So these calls for a ceasefire uh, keep growing every single day as this offensive intensifies. Uh, we've also heard from Antonio Guterres last night calling for uh, a ceasefire. We heard from the World Health Organization today calling for a ceasefire, saying that more than 160 medical workers have been killed on the job uh, in Gaza in the fighting. But again, we're continuing to hear Benjamin Netanyahu say there won't be any ceasefire in the fighting until the hostages are released, saying, despite these growing calls, given the worsening humanitarian situation there, that Israel has to keep up this fight to defeat Hamas. All right, Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Ashkelon, Israel. Well, today, the first Canadians and their families stuck inside Gaza have been able to leave. About 59 of them, according to Global Affairs Canada, but the government's been in contact with about 600 people inside that region. Azia Mathcore is one of those Canadians. Her two young children, her husband and her mother-in-law, have all been approved to leave Gaza, but were not on today's list. Azia's sister-in-law, May Latif, has been sharing updates uh, on her family with us, and she joins us yet again now. May, uh, thank you uh, for joining us yet again. Uh, last time we heard from Asia, we, we played a voice note she sent last night on the show uh, of a bomb, in the aftermath of a bomb that was very close to her. She seemed very afraid. Any update from her today in terms of how she's doing? Yeah, she's she's very shooken up. The whole family is. Um, right now, it's a little bit calmer. I might ent end this interview and I might hear that, you know, the airstrikes has increased uh, in her area. The news anchor that spoke right ahead of me 
mentioned that um, people are being told to go to the south area as it's safer. South area is on the outskirts. It's, it's not that much. It's not that large. Resources were little to begin with, and now it's it's gotten much worse. More individuals are coming there, and there's airstrikes happening there nonstop. Last night was the whole entire night. Asya and her family lost um, lost really close people to them. It was actually one of Asya's uh, childhood friends. She was murdered along with her whole family living in a neighborhood about two, three minutes away from Asya yesterday in the South Rafah area. So um, that area is really scary. In fact, just disease is really on the rise and she's trying her best to protect her children. And and so, yeah, today today wasn't good because they're just waiting on standby and hope that they'll hear some good news. And, I, I, I know you'd been in contact with, with us and our team, and uh, there was real joy, uh, I think, Friday or Saturday because they'd been approved to get out Sunday, uh, and then the border closed uh, because of issues between Israel, Egypt, and Hamas. Um, do, any sense of when the new departure time might be? Have they heard anything uh, for tomorrow, for example? Yeah, so... Just 30 minutes before I joined you in this interview, uh, we received an email that they're going to be on the list for tomorrow. Okay. Um, we don't know what that means because we've received this email in the past couple of weeks and um, they weren't able to leave. So we're hopeful. We're hopeful that they'll be leaving tomorrow, but we're also sitting on edge because we don't know what will pan out. And I don't think we'll feel that sense of relief until Asya and her family members make it from Gaza into Egypt and give us that call and say, you know, we're okay. Right, because uh, you've had this hope before, and, and it's been disappointment rather than evacuation. Um, but, you know... Uh I, I keep looking for silver linings in this story, and I know it's really hard, May, uh, but 59 people did get out today. So, I, I mean, that is progress. And, and I know there were others, like that's not the totality of the people who were able to leave. That's just the Canadian contingent. Um, so does that give you any comfort at all that, that tomorrow could, could actually be the day? It does. I mean, anytime someone is able to leave, not just my family members, mm -hmm. we feel a sense of relief, right? Because the, it's horrific what's happening there. Um, at the same time, you know, we're sad. We're sad for these people. They're very connected to their land. They want to be in their land. They want to be with their loved ones, their family. They, they don't necessarily want to leave. But we're just happy that there are people that have made it to a safe place. We're hoping that that's going to be the situation for Asya and her children tomorrow and, and other family members. Um, she did contact me also a couple hours ago to, to let me know that one of her Canadian Palestinian friends who made it to the Egyptian side, so she's in the Egyptian borders, um, is stranded there with approximately 30 other um, individuals that are mixed uh, citizenship. So some, um, for example, her family. So this friend is Canadian Palestinian, and she has a couple members of her that are not Canadian Palestinian. They're just Palestinian. This has caused, I think, some confusion, and they've been stranded there for about 10 hours. It's freezing, no blankets, and they're still waiting for Canadian officials to pick them up. So Asya is really concerned about the, uh, the journey as well because she has little children with her, and we don't know what's going to play out in the aftermath. 
So, sorry, this friend, this Palestinian-Canadian friend with some non-Canadian Palestinian relatives, that she's stuck at the, the Rafa exit? Is that, yeah. is that where she is? So she's made it out of the Rafa uh, Gaza area into the Egyptian borders uh, where they're kind of being held there, waiting for some Canadian officials to pick them up. Right, okay. What we've been told was that the ones that are just Canadian that didn't have... Um, family members with them that don't have the Canadian member uh, citizenship were able to leave, whereas they were left behind and they're waiting for someone to come pick them up. They are not allowed to leave the Egyptian borders until they are picked up from Canadian officials. So um, it's a messy area, too. It's a messy situation. Right. Okay. Um, I, 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 I don't know the answer to, to what's happening there, but may, I, we can maybe check and, and see what we can find out from Global Affairs Canada. But look, just, just as, as a final point, um, the kids, Salma and Salam, uh, two-year-old little girl, uh, five, five, Salam is, I believe, the boy? Yeah. Salma's five and the girl is two, yes. And how are they now? I know she was a little bit sick and she's gotten better, but uh, what's your latest on, on how they're doing, on what might be their last night in Gaza? Um, they're really scared, especially because of what happened last night. It was right. very scary for them. Um, so I know she told me they, they keep screaming, just, you know, randomly screaming. Their, their nervous system is really unsettled. Um, and they're sad about leaving because their grandfather, which is Asya's father, um, he's not going to be joining them. He is, it's a night, it's a tight knit community and he's the provider for his extended family as well. His extended family, brothers and sisters, don't have Canadian citizenship. They won't be leaving, and he, he told us he can't leave them behind. And so they're really scared. Um, they're really attached to their grandfather as well. So it's it's not an easy situation, to say the least. No, uh, nothing about this has been easy, uh, but, but we appreciate you joining us each time. And I hope, May, the next time we talk, um, Azia and, and as many of the family as, as can go, are, are out and safe, and, and you'll see them soon. So thanks for speaking with us again tonight, May Latif. Thank you. All right, as, as we've been discussing, Global Affairs Canada is confirming that 59 Canadians, permanent residents, and eligible family members crossed the Rafah border from Gaza into Egypt today. Well, two of those eligible family members are 12-year-old Amir Fayyad and 14-year-old Kamar Fayyad. Their father, Mohammed Fayyad, lives in Burnaby, British Columbia. We spoke to him earlier this month, and today he sent us this update. Finally, my children were able to cross the Rafah gate into Egypt. Um, so, so happy and no words to describe. Uh, I, I want to thank also the Indian government for their help and support. And I believe that uh, Global Affairs and Madame Yuri did their best to help the Canadians uh, to cross the border with Egypt. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for their help. Uh, yeah, so my children now on their way to, to the Cairo. And I, I think they, they need like seven hours to get there and uh, I wish also there would be another list on the coming days for Canadians who are still in Gaza. Thank you so much. 
That was Mohammed Fayyad in Burnaby, British Columbia. Well, one month into its war on Hamas, Israel says its troops are now in the heart of Gaza City. The war cabinet stated goal, the dismantling of Hamas. But as the death toll rises in Gaza, so too do calls for a ceasefire. Israel is rejecting those calls, saying there won't be a ceasefire or a pause in hostilities without the return of the hostages held by Hamas. And last night, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was asked who should govern in Gaza after the war. Uh, I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. Ido Moed is Israel's ambassador to Canada. Ambassador, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It, it's a grim anniversary. We're one month into this conflict, this war. How close do you think we might be to the end? We are far from, to the, from the end that we want to achieve. Israel is out to destroy Hamas infrastructure, Hamas leadership of the Gaza Strip, actually liberate Gaza Strip from Hamas reign and regime. We have advanced uh, militarily quite significantly. I think we've been able to take out uh, many of the leaders, but we know that Hamas leadership is still out there. Actually, much of many of them are fled the Gaza Strip. They are all over the world. They are spread. They are enjoying their wealth and, and, and controlling whatever is happening in the Gaza Strip from the outside. We will not stop until this uh, infrastructure, this war machine of the Hamas, will be completely terminated. So our, we are in the midst of it. We hope to be able to finish this soon, but it's going to take a while. I, I wanted to ask you about something Prime Minister Netanyahu said uh, yesterday, uh, that, that once this war is over, Israel will be responsible for the overall security situation in Gaza for an indefinite period, in his words. Does that mean Israel is intending to occupy Gaza when this is over? Israel intends to bring these people back home. These children, these... 240 people who have been killed, who have been taken hostage in the Gaza Strip. This is what the Israeli government is responsible for, to bring them back home. This is what we are talking about when we want to finish this operation. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said very clearly that what our goals are, we do not intend to occupy, we don't intend to take land. We want to make sure that Israel is safe again, that Israeli citizens are safe again, that they can live in their homes safely. And what we found out that the so-called ceasefire, whatever there was before 7 of October, that is finished. That will not come back again. We have to have a new security arrangement to make sure that this war machine cannot come together and do what it inflicted on the Israeli population, killing 1,400 people, wounding over 5,000, and continuing the barrage of uh, rockets. We've gone far uh, above 10,000 rockets that have been shot from very nearby all the way up to Tel Aviv, just as we speak now, two salvos were shot again of tens of rockets into Israel. This cannot continue, so we have to terminate that. So, so what exactly does the Prime Minister mean then? I, I'm, I'm trying to understand it, because it sounded like, and when he says we'll take responsibility for the security situation, you would need to physically be there to, to ensure that and, and have you know, the IDF, he referenced specifically, being responsible for it. Is he just talking about a situation that, where they surround Gaza to keep sort of, uh, what exactly does the Prime Minister see as what happens when this is over? This is over when these people are back, and this is over when Hamas is not able to shoot their rockets and not able to cross the border and, and kill and, and rape and mutilate people across the border. That's when it will be over. What will be the exact security arrangement we'll have to determine when, that, when the time comes. Right now, 
our necessity is to make sure that the IDF takes out this infrastructure. That's what they are doing. Right. So, but just on that point, I mean, I, I guess there has to be planning in two tracks, right? To, to accomplish what you want to do in terms of neutralizing and eliminating Hamas, but then preparing for the day after that. This is something that's been part of the conversation here. Uh, do you have a sense of what happens once you achieve, if you achieve your military objectives, what, what happens the next day in terms of taking control of Gaza? There's no doubt that we will achieve our goals. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. What happens before we continue to discuss what is the next step and how the future of the Middle East will be, there is a lot that needs to be done before that. So I think trying to project an image as if that's where we're going to do, that's where we're going to uh, right now is the wrong image. Um, the Middle East, Israel, but also a broader community faces a new era. We are in a new era where terrorism and atrocities are becoming a part of uh, politics in a way that is totally unacceptable. And the world has to act against that. It's not just an Israeli problem. It's, it's not as if whatever happens in Gaza, if there is some kind of a solution, that will solve the problem. This, the problem is much deeper. Mm. We are dealing with a state like Iran that is behind all this. We are dealing with organizations and terrorists worldwide who are ready, as we speak, to attack Israeli and Jewish targets. We are speaking about the rise of anti-Semitism anti to a level that is not known before, I think, from the Second World War. And this is actually a fight about the values of the Judeo-Christian way of government, the, 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 the freedom, the tolerance, the acceptance of each other, of any uh, religion, every stream, as long as it's done peacefully and within the context of a free society. And this is actually what we are talking about when we're talking about the day after. So it's a much mm -hmm. broader issue than just solving specifically the f issue of Hamas. You, you've brought the pictures there of, of um, the people who were kidnapped on October 7th and are currently being held hostage, and we don't have any real clarity on, on their condition, on their safety, on their health, their well-being. There have been a, a very small number released through negotiations brokered by Cotter, the Red Cross, and other organizations. We've seen reports of maybe optimistic reports that there might be a mass release of 40 or 50 people, and it never... It never came to fruition. What can you tell us about what you know about the conditions of the, of the people whose pictures you brought and, and the prospects uh, of them being released through negotiation? Because the longer it goes on, the, the worse it seems. Look at this picture. You can't identify anybody here because it's so small, because there are so many people on it. Nobody knows what is their fate. Nobody knows if they're alive. We know that some of them were taken wounded. We know that some of them were pregnant. We know that some are elderly need their medication. We know that uh, people are traumatized. We're talking about babies. A nine-month-old baby is now 10-month-old. 10% of his life is spent in captivity in a tunnel somewhere. We have no idea. The Red Cross has no access. International organizations have no access. And this humanitarian catastrophe is part of what Israel is undergoing, the change that we are undergoing right now in trying to understand how we move forward from our security point of view, we look at this image. It's a pain that is not going away on a daily basis. It's a war crime that humanity has to act in consortium against that. We, the international community sh should come together as a coalition 
to do whatever it takes to liberate those people because them holding, being held hostage by the beasts of Hamas, by the monsters of Hamas, is something that we cannot accept. And this is really what we should be worried about. How do we take, bring these people back home? After 30 days or 32 days, actually, of being held captive by those who killed their parents in front of their eyes, those who raped, those who mutilated their friends, we have to liberate them. We have to bring them back home. Clearly, the, the kidnapping of civilians, uh, the murdering of innocents is a crime, is a war crime. But, um, Ambassador, I've had people, Palestinian Canadians with family in Gaza, sitting in the same chair, holding up pictures of their family members who have been killed by, by the bombardments, young kids, old women, old men, and the United Nations Human Rights Office is saying some of the strikes that your military has committed in there, they think may constitute a war crime. The, 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 the casualties are, are in the thousands. What do you say to people who hold up pictures and use the same language you've just used, but pointing it the other way and, and, and are calling for a ceasefire so that civilians can be saved? First, let's speak about, about the people. I feel for all those who are being killed by this war. But if we're talking about international law, and if we're talking about how this has, ha has happened, we should think about Hamas. Hamas co commits a double war crime. It is shooting from within densely populated areas into densely populated areas on the other side. They are deliberately hiding behind, sorry, behind the population because they know that if Israel shoots back, there is a risk, there is a chance that those who are not involved with also get uh, get hurt. Sure. We are trying to do whatever we can to get people out of harm's way. We inform them, we drop leaflets. They know better than we do where, are, where is Hamas located, but Hamas forces them to stay. So if people keep being killed, we have to understand that it, we have to look at Hamas. Hamas perpetuates this war crime, this crime against humanity, by deliberately forcing the people to stay there. Israel, from its own perspective, uh, abides by international law, and we have to look at what international actually means when we are using it. So, for example, if you are attacking a target that is inhabited by terrorists, the terrorists are the ones who make that target a legitimate target to be, to be targeted in the first place. Then you have to estimate what is the threat that emanates from that target at the time of the attack, not in hindsight, but in present time. What does the military commander know, and why does he attack? And we outside the room of that commander right. would not know exactly what are his considerations, but our instructions, the military instructions are to weigh those before we attack. But there's been more military strikes on, on Gaza uh, in a month uh, than, than the U.S. did on Afghanistan in a year by, by some of the metrics that are there, and it's a much smaller uh, area, and, and it's a lep about you know, more than 10,000 strikes. I, I mean, it, 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 does it not seem like a lot to you when you look at the human toll on the civilian side, even if the Hamas run numbers are exaggerated, what you're hearing from independent aid groups, it's pretty high. I mean, do you worry about the international community losing patience with Israel as the death toll continues to climb and the images keep coming out? We worry about one thing only, and that is eradicating the infrastructure of Hamas. If you look at the imagery that we we've been able to provide underneath the Al-Shifa hospital, the tunnels and the command centers, and the fact that we know that underneath that hospitals, the terrorists who perpetrated the attack of September, of October the 7th, are hiding, then you would understand that it's not an easy feat to defeat them. So 
it's not a question of weighing how many bombs and so on. It's a question of how deep they've been dug themselves inside and underneath the ground. And we have to understand... Even if you have to bomb a hospital to do it? We will not bomb a hospital. Okay. But we'll do whatever it takes to take out those terrorists. So when they're hiding behind the population, we do everything we can to make those uh, uh, civilians and not involved civilians get away from out of harm's way. Right. If that would mean to evacuate a hospital, maybe that's the, that's the way to do it. But we will not hit a hospital. And so in the case of Hamas, when they spent the billions of dollars in building their tunnels, never spending a dollar in creating shelters for their own population, we have to understand that they are committing not just a war crime, but perhaps a genocide. Ido Moed, Israel's ambassador to Canada, thanks for coming in again. Thank you for having me. The Israeli army is now battling Hamas fighters inside Gaza City, indicating the start of a new stage of the war now one month in. So far, the conflict has claimed thousands of lives and leveled much of the Palestinian territory. Just yesterday, the main representative for the Palestinian delegation here in Canada got news that five of her family members are among those killed. Mona Abu Amara is the chief representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada, and she joins me now. Ms. Abu Amara, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, David. We've talked to a lot of people uh, on the show about deep and personal losses they've suffered, and I understand you've recently lost five members of your family. I, I wanted to offer my condolences and, and ask you what you can tell us about them and, and what happened. Um, so, basically... Uh, it's it's the same story for every Palestinian family. Uh, so, as a chief representative, I will be telling it, but it's not uh, just uh, the story of the Abu Omar family. It's uh, the story of every family in general, f even before this aggression. Um, and uh, it's the same pain uh, that every family now uh, is suffering. So, my family originally... Um, was dispossessed from Yaffa, so they were refugees in Gaza. When uh, when they settled there, um, part of the family left um, and and went all over the world. At that time, after the '48, and my dad was 15 when he left. He went to study abroad, but then '67 um, uh, came and he got stuck outside, and we only uh, were able to come back uh, after Oslo. So we have family in different places. So right. the family that stayed in, in Gaza was also far from us because of the blockade that was set on it. So you know of your family that's so close yet so far. Right. You hear of them and you speak to them um, when it's Eid, when it's someone's loss or um, something like this. But uh, this uh, incident brings so many people together and um, I just got a chance to speak to the daughter of uh, uh, the, the, the person who's the, he was a chief justice and uh, he was a professor and dean of law in Al-Azhar um, University. Her dad, so her dad, mom, and three brothers uh, were hiding in uh, the brother's restaurant um, 
uh, in a basement because they convinced their dad to come and mom from their home, which is close to Al Shifa Hospital. Right. But this house is uh, about 700 uh, um, meters away from their uh, house as well. The restaurant has not been working since uh, the beginning of the aggression, and uh, they were hiding in the basement. And up on on those like this building is for them. So it's an Abu Amara building um, where they built their homes upstairs and then their restaurant uh, uh, in the ground. The the house was bombed once a uh, few days before because uh, uh, Israel uh, targets the solar panels uh, on homes and uh, hospitals and all of uh, those things, just like uh, it's targeting the water tanks and the bakeries. Um, so it was bombed, but it didn't get to most of the panels at that time. So uh, they went um, inside the home when it came to the time for bedtime. Um, the, the wives of those three kids went upstairs to get the kids to sleep. They, there were nine children in the house. Um, and then they heard the bomb, the, the bang. Um, the four-story building fell uh, to the ground. They managed to pull uh, out um, the wives and uh, the children, thank God. One of uh, their wives were, was uh, nine months pregnant and she broke her um, uh, foot and uh, went to surgery um, and some of the kids uh, got uh, uh, were injured but Thank God they uh, survived. They weren't able to pull them out, so I, I found out, I thought they were bombed yesterday, uh, but because of the telecommunication and everything, right. they, they weren't pulled out, uh, uh, they weren't able to pull them out, so the five stayed overnight because it was late when the bombing happened. And today they managed to pull two out, there are three still under the rubble because they can't use heavy machinery um, and there's no fuel, there's, there's no, no fuel. electricity and nobody can pull them out yet. We're, we're a month into this, this particular episode, um, this war, this conflict, whatever word you want to use for it. How close do you think we are to the end of this? Do you see an end, at mm. least in the hostilities and the fighting? No, because this is this is not just uh, it's it's Israel's revenge. It's a uh, revenge on all people. Israel wants to see blood, but uh, uh, just like with the occupation, uh, we don't see an end to that and we will not see an end to that until the free world countries like the US, Canada and Europe intervene and demand that uh, international law is applied and the universal um, values are applied equally to, to everyone. I asked his daughter before I came in what she would like me to deliver as a message. Um, to, to everyone and she said what do I do tell them that they they were all hard workers they studied so much they tried so much they didn't find work in Gaza because of the blockade so they ended up as engineers had to work in a restaurant right. but they kept moving and going so this did not start a month ago, did not start two months ago. It started 75 years ago, and only justice um, for the people under occupation can... How, how, does, that, how does that happen? Like, let's, let's say the fighting does stop. 
Okay, let's uh, as a thought exercise because I have no idea when this is going to end any more than you do. Israel has stated it needs to eliminate Hamas to feel safe, and Hamas has been discredited as a voice for the Palestinian people in the the Western world that that you talked about. Uh, you know who need to uh, insist that Israel uh, abides by international law. Who governs Gaza going forward? You know how 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 does it function? Once this military operation ends, what what do you see as a path forward there? That's the thing, David. The, the supremist colonial outlook on things that Israel um, needs to put uh, people in prison uh, to govern them, basically from the outside, and then now it claims it needs to eliminate certain people, and then gives the governing to someone, which is a conversation they have with the uh, Americans and they go all over the world. And, and it doesn't work that way. They've tried it for, for, for decades now. And the only way is for the oppressor to know that they cannot oppress anymore for them. This is not happening just in, in Gaza. This is happening in the West Bank and those pictures and videos that come out from there from what settlers are doing mm -hmm. to the people that they are stealing land from but what does Israel do they give them M16s they give them weapons to be able to assault the Palestinian indigenous population living on its land by those who come to steal it this is the injustice i'm talking about and it has no beginning last month and it will not have an end with someone deciding who's going to govern. Let them open Gaza and have people come and see what's happening. Why is Israel and Canada so afraid of international law, of international organs? Why is Canada blocking us in the ICC? Would it block the Israeli families that went to the ICC and asked them for an investigation? Why do they get to uh, go and us? We can't go and, and bring our case to the ICC. Well, the, the UN Human Rights Agency has said it's, it, it believes, for example, the attack on the Jabalia refugee camp by Israel may constitute a war crime, and, and it wants to do an investigation there. And, okay. and there has been increased criticism, I would say, of Israel's conduct of the war. Even you see the White House spokespeople expressing a, a dissatisfaction, perhaps, with the efforts made to protect civilians. Yeah. I, I know you're going to interpret that uh, quite differently, and I, and I understand that. But if, if Israel right now has the dominance in the territory, you, you know, if it is not Hamas, is it the Palestinian Authority, you know, who, who can speak? Because they're unpopular in Gaza, there's protests in the West Bank. I mean, who can be the voice for Palestinians in, in, in a conversation going forward? Well, help, help me understand it. Like, no, I, I, that's I, yeah. Now, that's not the problem. Palestinians can figure that out for themselves. Right. Who runs them? Who governs them? That's, that's their problem. The problem is that we are being butchered, massacred in the worst way. But you, the free world, insist on talking about... Uh, the symptoms, not the root causes. When when you come and look at at the devastation, at at all the war crimes, at the inhumane things that are happening to children, to nobody, nobody have faced in the last month anything that is comparable to the people of Gaza. So where do they stand on that? And mm -hmm. we go back again. We are prevented from 
um, resisting, resisting an occupation. We are prevented from uh, yelling our rights within. We are prevented from yelling our rights to the international organs. We are not allowed to talk about our occupier. So what does the world want from the Palestinian people? We are not going to appease an occupation and apartheid. And we are not going to be the perfect victims for the world. We will always be calling for our rights. And we have a right for this, these organs to take its uh, responsibility and implement international law that has been created. Because if you are looking at pictures, if they're in Ukraine or they're in Gaza, and then deciding who gets to fight and be called the hero who gets to uh, yell and cry, uh, hurt, and uh, who doesn't, then this is not international law and universal values. It's just self-interest. And I'm sorry, we have been uh, dehumanized enough, and the Palestinians are looking at the Western world, waiting for that day where you would realize that this dehumanization is an atrocious thing to do. I, I just have one la last question for you. I wonder if you can respond to what Prime Minister Netanyahu said yesterday about the IDF having security responsibility for Gaza when the conflict ends. We spoke to the Israeli ambassador. He says that does not mean they're going to occupy Gaza again. I know they have been blockading it and controlling access in and out. What do you think Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government intends to do with, with Gaza when, when, when they, if they get to the point of, of eliminating Hamas as their stated goal? David, they never ended their occupation, no matter what they want to call it to the world. Uh, Gazans have been deprived of their, of their basic humanity. So if that's not occupation, what is it? It's tyranny, it's oppression. So if they're on the ground or not on the ground, they still control every breath, what you eat, how much you drink, um, how much electricity you get. That's, that's occupation. So they're there either way, on the ground, out of the ground. The world needs to accept and start with accepting that this is an Israeli occupation and it's the root cause and it needs to end. Mona Abu Amer, Chief Representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Premiers say the federal government isn't dealing fairly with provinces when it cuts funding deals for housing directly with municipalities. I think there's a shared concern uh, that there is a federal government that is increasingly uh, looking at uh, the, the potential political benefits, for lack of a better term, of circumventing the provinces and landing in a, a Toronto or Vancouver and dropping a, a housing program uh, strictly for political gain. But today, federal ministers are pushing back on that idea. If we are living in a crisis situation, we cannot afford to take a solution off the table. What we saw yesterday is something which is quite contrary to what we're hearing from municipalities themselves and what premiers themselves have said. They can't wait for provinces and territories to get their act together. 
Okay, we're going to assess all of this debate with the power panel. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michel Cadario is here, as is Francoise Boivin, a former NDP MP and a political commentator. The CBC's Jason Markasoff joins us, and here with me in studio, Denise Ciele is a senior advisor with Artful Strategies. Hello, gang. Uh, Michelle, just when you thought it was safe to start building houses in this country, the premiers say this is the latest uh, assault on, on how, the, how the country is supposed to operate. What do you make of their criticism that they should have a bigger role at the table here? Well, nothing gets the, uh, you know, provincial feathers more in a ruffle than the feds kind of um, overstepping them and starting to look at uh, do deals with the municipalities. It really harkens back to, you know, when I was working for Prime Minister Martin and uh, the whole gas tax and, and getting money directly to municipalities for infrastructure and roads. Um, and at that time, for uh, if that could help housing as well, monies could be for that. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like a big roundabout thing. I am confident that, you know, deals will be struck, money will flow. And of course, the feds are going to, um, you know, use what the tools that they have. I'm, I think it's a great idea. Get some money into the municipalities. Give them some incentive to move projects along. You know, I don't think that the public will have one iota of sympathy for any of the premier's um, being all uh, all uppity about how this is happening, they just want to see action, and so uh, I think that the feds are doing the right thing. So, so Denise, on, on this point, I mean, we've seen Sean Fraser, the housing minister, cutting a bunch of deals through the Housing Accelerator Fund. The premiers say they're being cut out of that. Uh, I mean, we do also see premiers quite often almost demanding that the feds intrude into their jurisdiction, at least when it comes to providing mon money. How do you think this is going to play? I don't know that it's um, that premiers are demanding intrusion. What they're saying is uh, there is a circumvention of what we understand in terms of jurisdictionality, where uh, the municipalities have every right to ask for more money, but the provinces are saying, well, hang on a second, you're making deals with certain municipalities based on and uh, based on what, who has been elected and who has not been elected. And I think, you know, it's, it's quite right for the premiers to say, well, hang on a second. Can we get a fair deal, a new deal? And um, my colleague uh, just mentioned a new deal under Paul Martin. And yeah. he was the one about a decade ago who sort of uh, started to talk about a new deal directly to municipalities. And the premiers are right uh, to say, well, hang on a second. This is our jur jurisdiction. Well, you know, Francoise, uh, Tim Houston chaired the, the premier's meeting yesterday as a chair of the Council of the Federation. He talked about the need to get the feds in when he was on the show. I said, could this slow things down? He said, no, no, it'll speed it up. There's a story on our website now, Mike Savage, the mayor of Halifax, saying he believes it'll slow it down because in the past, the Nova Scotia government's been too slow to pass through federal money or do the matching money. And he's not just the mayor of Halifax, he's the, mayor of the, he's the chair of the big city mayor's caucus for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So, so, so what do you make of where this thing stands? And I hear the same thing uh, from some municipalities in, in Quebec, but let's face it, it's still a dangerous game for the feds to go directly to the municipality unless we have zero constitution. And I know that the people listening to me, my colleagues are right, uh, there's a need, and I think that's what the feds are playing with. There's a need, sympathy will not lie with the provinces saying, hey, wait, this is in art of, of, of our jurisdiction. We need to address this together. Why can't these different levels not w be able to work together is beyond me. And, and, and it is political, let's face it, because 
politics is very, very local. I remember because when I first sat as a, as a liberal in 2004, we were looking at ways that we could be relevant for, for, for people, for their day-to-day. -day. And municipalities are the best conduit for, for, for that aspect. And, and But when I say it's a dangerous game, uh, David, uh, I mean, we've got the carbon tax that is dividing... Uh, the country. We've got now this where the, the premiers are, are going after uh, the prime minister saying, hey, that's not the proper way to do. We had a health uh, first ministers at, and with the prime minister actually was just a quick visit to hear what they were willing the feds to offer uh, to, to the province and take it or leave it. We have yet to sit down together and see what, what best way to do things. And, and sadly, municipalities still have to abide by some provincial legislation. So uh, it's going to be a big mess. It's dangerous to go too fast because they might do things wrong. And I think it's very, very, in my book, very disrespectful from the federal government, the way they're treating their partners in crime, uh, the province on that uh, such serious uh, topic. Okay, so, so Jason, the Constitution and jurisdiction really matters when the premiers don't like what the federal government is doing. But when Tim Houston wants to do a school lunch program in Nova Scotia, which is his responsibility, he's looking to the federal government for money. When the city of Toronto needs help to deal with transit issues, which is Toronto's responsibility and Ontario's responsibility, they want the federal government to intrude into their, uh, their, their constitutional areas with money. I, I mean, how political is this, this, this current that's going on on the housing. I mean, the, the, the feds are the, the you know the feds are the checkbook for the mm. provincial government, and that's on uh, on so many things. Um, you know, I'm you know you, we talked earlier about uh, Paul Martin and what he did. I'm old enough to remember uh, time August 2023. It was, I believe, <laughs> when uh, the federal when people were pillorying pillorying Justin Trudeau for saying I'd you know I'm going to act on housing even though it's not really a federal responsibility. Yeah. Um, we're at the point where every, you know, I think people are expecting every level of government um, to uh, to act on housing. Certainly, the polls and the Liberals' recent suffering in the polls uh, suggest that the public um, thinks it is a uh, it is a federal responsibility, and that they are um, largely the bearers of fault for uh, the housing crisis, for cost of living problems. Uh, but to Francois's point, um, there. You know the the government levels of government have to get along, and um, if you have turf wars and uh, you know this level of frustration with between the provinces and uh, and the federal government on carbon tax, on you know housing turf housing turf jurisdictions, on so many other things, um, then there becomes great tension, especially when um, Quebec. Uh, has a separate deal where uh, the federal government has agreed to give Quebec a big block of funding and let them disperse it upon a certain level of criteria, which is the way they, you know, the province likes the uh, government to do that. So the consistency, um, I would understand uh, that they'd have issue with that. However, um, if Pierre Polyev uh, becomes prime minister with his promises, um, <laughs> this argument will come back tenfold because he's promising uh, several interventions into uh, <laughs> housing yes. policy on this stuff. So uh, I don't know if the uh, if if the feds don't win, uh, sorry, if the provinces don't win with that Trudeau. I'm not sure how well much ground they'll get with, uh, um, you know, on turf with uh, Polyev. So, so Michelle, their, their discomfort with the approach by the federal government aside, if you look at what what has been done with the housing accelerator deals, the seven deals that that Sean Fraser has done with various cities over the past little while, he's gotten a lot of zoning changed to open up for housing in a way that I've not seen a premier
or you know any of the people who are concerned about jurisdiction able to get these level of results. So I mean, you saw the pushback there from the federal government today, like talking about we can't wait for the provinces to get their act together. I think that gives us a pretty clear signal of where they're going to go on this, don't you think? One hundred percent. There's no way they're going to backtrack when you know taxpayers. And taxpayers don't care who's distributing the money or what. They just want to see the action done. And so if we're actually getting positive action, if we're seeing that projects are moving forward, if we're seeing that houses and and, uh, housing is actually being built, then, you know, the provinces are going to back off. And yes, you do need the provincial governments to be able to distribute the money because of how the Constitution works. There there is that that aspect to it. Um, But... I'm sure a adequate deal will be struck because a province would be pilloried if they somehow were the roadblock to action being taken in cities in their uh, in their provinces. So um, I think the feds on this one are on high ground, um, and they've just got to continue to push ahead because the public, I believe, will be firmly behind them. So, so Denise, on that point, how do you think the public will view it, for example, here in Ontario, where Fraser's been able to cut deals and the Greenbelt plan that the Ford government launched has been nothing but retreat and controversy ever since? Well, uh, when we talk about high ground, what we really need is shovels uh, in, in, in the ground. And um, I, I would argue that uh, Conservatives are really looking at um, how many homes can be built knowing uh, affordability, the housing crisis is... J- it is massive, intense, mm-hmm. and so it is not about what is being negotiated municipality by municipality, but it is what is good for Canadians lit large, lit large from coast to coast to coast. And this, therein lies the rub, that there's some deals being cut for parts of Canada and others where, you know, uh, people just... Look... Well- Sleeping on the streets in yeah. Canada in 2023. That's problematic. But, but Francois, I guess the, what the premiers were laying out was a process argument yesterday, right? And, and, and what the yes. feds are responding with today is a results rebuttal. Uh, and I know they have a long way to go on housing, uh, but it seems like uh, th- they're not going to get bogged down in a, in a process fight based on, on what the premiers are saying now. Well, I, I really wish the, fed, the federal government well, but uh, do you have an idea of how many municipalities and cities we have in Canada? So it's going to be a long process. I mean, we'll have a lot of visit from Minister Fraser and company uh, to go hand out the, 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 the checks. I mean, I, I really recommend to them to do what Quebec did, which is to stay to the federal. You don't deal with our municipality. The buck stops here. They, they made a deal to together, the federal and and Quebec, and uh, let Quebec deal with all these municipalities who have their hand up. Are they making progress on housing in Quebec? I, I mean, how are oh, they yes, doing with this? Oh, yes, we are. Yeah? Yes, yes, they are. But they just they just settled with the federal government not too mm-hmm. long ago. I think a, a couple of weeks ago. So, because it, it's all fine and dandy to make that big, and I was l- listening to those ministers, um, all of them saying, hey, uh, we want result, and I'm thinking, wow, three, four cities? Do the calculation, people. It's going to yeah. take them a long time to get the end result. So I, I, I still say sit down with your partners and the municipalities because they know what, uh, 
what what needs to be done and and which part of their city that they can move along and 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 so on and so forth right. it's not such an easy thing between the shovel and the ground and 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 to take some uh, the right decisions no i i hear you and i think they got deals with seven cities uh but 540 wow. more applications so if they got to do all of those and and, and jason to give you the last word if sean frazier's got to do all of those announcements he's not going to see nova scotia for a long time uh, uh, just uh, uh, wrap it up jason I, mean, I would imagine either which way they're going to ultimately have to, they'd have to do some level of vetting um, with municipal funding if they, you know, municipal projects if they were um, giving the money out to the province. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, then, you know, then, you know, so he gives the money to the feds, the provinces. Then it becomes their problem. Then it becomes their challenge and their race against the clock to get 500 and some applications done uh, each, uh, each by each. Uh, yeah, that's a, a good point to end it on. All right, I want to thank the power panel, Denise CLA, Francoise Boy, Jason Markasoff, and Michelle Cadario. Thanks so much, gang. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.